Chapter 18, Take It to the Cross. It is difficult to live with change, but impossible to live without it. The only constant in maturity is change. How you handle change shows your level of maturity. What you believe about God shows what you believe about yourself. Let's do that one again. What you believe about God shows what you believe about yourself. In the ensuing years since the first part of this book was written and published, it has been printed in more than 40 languages. Almost 2 million have been printed, and it has been distributed through the Christian Men's Network to over 200 nations of the world. Manhood and Christlikeness are synonymous. It has become the central message with the phrase itself now being a basic part of the Christian ministry lexicon. At issue today is the message of the gospel story itself and its central truth. The truth concerns the cross, the symbol of Christianity. The symbol is not the manger nor the empty tomb, but Calvary's cross. Jesus was born in a manger and was resurrected from the tomb, but redemption for man was accomplished on the cross. The Bible is a book of history, poetry, proverbs, genealogies, law, prophecy, doctrine, and biography. The cross is the center line of the Bible. <clears throat> In the Old Testament are the Pentateuch, history, poetry, prophecy, and in the New Testament are the Gospels, history, epistles, and revelation. The cross is the culmination, culminating place of worship. First an altar, then the tabernacle, the temple, and finally, Calvary. Golgotha. The cross is the place of exchange. Where you can go to the cross, you leave different from the way you came. When you go to the cross, you leave different from the way you came. Take it to the cross is the title and banner under which eternal changes takes place in our lives. We take guilt and we leave with acquittal. We take repentance and leave with faith, sorrow and leave with joy. We take our sin and leave with righteousness, stupidity and we leave with wisdom, ignorance and leave with eternal knowledge, disease and we leave with healing. We take rejection and leave with acceptance. We take impotence and leave with power. You get the idea? The cross takes an old life and makes it become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Take it to the cross. God's love is connected to the cross. The cross is God's display of love for the world. To tell of God's love without telling of the cross is an egregious error. The cross is where God's wrath against sin was appeased by Christ's sacrifice. So God could be just in giving in forgiving guilty man. None of us can live according to the law because we are lawbreakers by nature. We are all guilty of breaking the law. Consider the commandments God gave. If you break one, it's as if you've broken them all. None of us have ever been able to keep them all, and most of us have broken all of them in one way or another. Therefore, we need someone to forgive us in our lawbreaking. The reason God gave the law was to use it as a schoolmaster to teach us as we are lawbreakers and thus sinners. If sinners, then we are in need of someone, some means to take away our sin 
and make us righteous in the sight of God. If the law is not fully understood, the sinner won't appreciate the grace of God that emanates from the cross. To minister grace without the knowledge of the law is like giving a man medicine when he doesn't even know he's sick. Men fail to appreciate a cure if they don't know they are sick. The law shows us that we are sick, sin sick by nature. We are in need of a cure. The cure is the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. But if we don't admit we are sick, the cure means nothing to us. The devil's temptation in the Garden of Eden was to assure Adam and Eve that if they took of the tree, they would be as God. That's humanism. Hasn't changed from then until now. The devil's lie is to make us think we are good enough for God by our own effort, efforts. Liar. Peter and the disciples were with Jesus when he asked them, What do men say that I am? Matthew 16 and 13. Peter answered as to what they what they said, and they were all wrong. They usually are. Then Jesus asked, Whom do you say that I am? Verse 15, And Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 16. Jesus commended him for the answer, declaring that man had not taught him that, but he spoke it by revelation from the Father in heaven. Verse 17. Later, Jesus began to clarify clearly show the dis disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the high priest and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised from death, verse 21. Peter took Jesus aside and began to reprove and char charge him for talking like that. God forbid, Lord, this must never happen to you, verse 22. Jesus turned away from Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, verse 23. In other words, Jesus told Peter he was sounding just like the devil. Peter was not speaking by revelation as he had before, but like a man who was not partaking of the nature and quality of God. Why did Jesus tell Peter he was sounding like the devil? Because one of the devil's temptations was to offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would bow down and worship the devil, Matthew 4, 8 through 9. Satan was tempting Jesus according to his worth in the kingdom of God. So also the devil will tempt you according to your worth in the kingdom of God. The more worth you are to God's kingdom, the more the devil will offer you to serve him. The devil was attempting to keep Jesus from going to the cro cross. However, Jesus said, no cross, no crown. The only way to redeem sinful man was by his sacrificial death upon the cross. Only through that redemptive offer could you and I be forgiven of our sins and enter into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The covenant was to be a bold covenant through the blood shed, by, shed upon the cross. That same blood is now before the mercy seat in heaven, and on the basis of that offering we have God's mercy and grace to forgive us and reconcile us unto himself. No greater sacrifice can be made than that which Christ made at the cross. Peter sounded like the devil by trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. To omit the cross is to make Christianity just like any other religion on the face of the earth. It is the devil's purpose to keep men like you and me from taking it to the cross. The cross is where Jesus triumphed over principalities and powers. It is the place where Satan's power is broken. At the cross, we are crucified to the world 
and the world is crucified to us. After rebuking Peter, Jesus continued to tell his disciples, If anyone desires to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16 and 24. Notice he did not say for us to take up his cross and follow him, but for us to take up our cross and follow him. We cannot bear Christ's cross. He will not bear ours. We must take up our cross and follow. What is our cross? What is his cross? Our Lord took up his cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, but was nailed to the cross on Calvary. As he prayed in the garden with such intensity that blood burst through his pores rather than sweat, he asked the Father if it was possible to keep him from going to the cross. He was going to be made sin for us, take upon himself God's wrath against sin, taste our death, and it was reprehensible to his sinless person. If it, is po if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Was Jesus' prayer in the garden, Matthew 26 and 39. When he submitted to the will of the Father and admitted his willingness to die that he might have life, he took up his cross. His cross was a willingness to do the will of God, <coughs> even at the expense of himself. He told you and me to take up our cross and follow him to be his disciple. What is our cross? It's the same as his. Our cross is a willingness to do the will of God even at the expense of ourselves. Even as Christ died on the cross, we must die to ourselves that, so that the will of God can be done in our lives. Take it to the cross. Where is the cross in the life of the man who walks out of his house and marriage yelling, I just want to live? He is willing to let the marriage die and him live? rather than the marriage live and him die to himself? Think about it. Hmm. Chapter 19, That's My Dad. Your talent can take you where your character can't sustain you. This is true of athletes and CEOs, CEOs as well as preachers. The legacy of a father is the character he instills in his son and daughter. Three of the greatest words any man can hear are, that's my dad. Government is powerless to make people stay married, cause parents to love their children, make parents raise their children properly, make parents keep their promises to their children. One of the major reasons for writing against divorce, as I do, came from a child of divorce who said, my childhood stopped when my parents divorced. In her book about stepfamilies, Joanne Webster writes, people shouldn't think twice about getting divorced. They should think about it 50,000 times and still not do it. Judith Wallerstein writes in her book, The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce, a 25-year case study. Children of divorce never recover from it. She shows the result of divorce in the children's lives and how it affects them as, as adults. Society, which begins in the church, must affirm traditional marriage is vital teach parents to love and care for their children, strengthen families to strengthen the community, and teach children the importance of relationships. Home is a school of first instruction. Our children are the leading indicator of the future of our nation. A man's life is summed up in or found on three things, stewardship, relationship, and leadership. 
All three are vital, impor vitally important with children. To be a father is to be the procreator of a human life that is formed and fashioned in the image and likeness of God. That is a sacred matter. A child is to be the product of love, not lust. Too often when it's just lust, the life given is not regarded as sacred and abortion is the result. As a father, you, re you are responsible for the child you have conceived. You are responsible for the child you made the mother abort. You are responsible for the child that you abandoned who is now on drugs, in jail, or in prost prostitution. You are responsible for the fatherless children made that way by your irresponsibility. You sit here reading this, and somewhere there is a fatherless child on the streets you put there, and you don't give a blankety-blank-blank. Are you, and you are more concerned about the world I just, word I just indented than the child about whom I am talking about. I want to read that again. And you are more concerned about the word I just in, intended than the child about whom I'm talking. Sons and daughters are born. Fathers are made. Any male can conceive a child, but only a man can father a child. No man has the right to impregnate a woman and get her with child unless he is willing to father the child that is born. No man. We as men are called to raise G-rated children in an X-rated world. Our responsibility is to raise trustworthy children who respect and admire their father. God's ammunition is to us is not to provoke them to wrath, but to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6 and 4. To do that takes time, quality time. There is no substitute for time. To give time is to give yourself, and that is what it takes. I was privileged to be the speaker at a Promise Keepers meeting at the Los Angeles Coliseum where 78,462 men were in attendance. I said something, and the whole crowd let out a concerted groan. All I said was, a practicing atheist does not stand on the street corner and shake his fist at heaven, shouting that he doesn't believe in God. He just lives as if there is no God. Most of you go to church on Sunday, then come home and do something, some, nothing spiritual during the week, like reading the Bible or praying. And to all intents, you are a professing Christian on Sunday and a practicing atheist during the week. Groan. The Apostle Paul gave the premise for a good father when he said, Follow me as I follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 and 1. The scriptural account of Moses en route to taking up the mantle of leadership of Israel says he became ill to the point of death. His wife Zipporah circumcised their eldest son, and Moses became well, then continued on his journey. Strange insertion in just a couple of verses. But why? Our Lord said, if you were Abraham's seed, you would do the works of Abraham, John eight thirty nine. Abraham is the father of God's family of faith on earth. All believers in Christ realize they are descendants by faith through faithful Abraham. God's condemnation of him was simple. I know him that he will command his family after him, Genesis eighteen nineteen. What were the works of Abraham that he passed on to his descendants? First, he obtained righteousness by faith. Second, he tithed. Third, he rescued Lot. Fourth, he commanded his family after him. 
God proved and qualified Abraham to be the leader of his heavenly family on earth through leading his earthly family. That is why Paul wrote to Timothy and told him that a minister must first prove himself a leader of his own family before he can lead the family of God in church. Abraham was responsible to circumcise his son, give him an inheritance, teach him a trade, and find him a wife. It was Moses' responsibility to circumcise his son, and he failed to do it. Why? I don't know. From practical experience, I can imagine him so busy with the call of God on his life that he left it up to his wife to care for the family. His wife, Zipporah, did not have the same heritage, upbringing, understanding of Jehovah and Abraham that he had. Thus, when she, she was forced to do it, she told him, she told him off. <laughs> Thus, when she was forced to do it, she told him off. His sin of neglecting the most important aspect of life, fathering, could have resulted from his being unequally yoked with a Midianite who was to, in, who was to indulge, indulge in of her children and Moses to indulge in of her. God taught Moses a lesson before he took up the role of captain of the Lord's people. Moses was without excuse. God taught him in the most severe way that no man is an exception to God's laws. God made it plain in no uncertain terms that no man is exempt from God's ways. No man can absent himself from God's word. Eli was a priest in Israel. He studied the writings. He knew his responsibility. Yet his sons became sons of Belial. Belial. Boy. Devilish, profane, selfish, base, and worthless. They made the people of Israel sin by their wickedness. Eli heard what his sons did and reproved them. He failed, however, to remove them from leadership in Israel. In failing to do so, God told Eli he was honoring his sons above him. God judged Eli harshly, but justly. He cut off his prosperity. What happened to this poor old man that he would suffer such a fate at the end of his long career in the service of God? He might have made his ministry, which was his career, his idol. Paid more attention to it than he did to the Lord. So many men do this today. It is not uncommon, but it is unscriptural. For all intents and purposes, he made his sons fatherless. They were not streetwise, but churchwise, by definition being religious, profane, manipulative, doing things only to impress, deceptive and hard-hearted. Not uncommon, but unspiritual. <clears throat> Consider the works of a real father, a real son of Abraham, a genuine son of God. First, circumcise your son. The New Testament, Testament equivalent would be to make sure your children are genuine Christians, born of God's Spirit. God gave to the Father the responsibility to see that his children know the Lord. God holds the man responsible. Too often, the man leaves the spiritual influence to his wife. By forfeiture, she becomes responsible. Men suffer from this and do not even know it. By refusing to accept the God-given responsibility to be the spiritual leader of the family, he comes under the judgment of God and wonders why he is not blessed of God. Very obvious. Second, give him an inheritance. Abraham gave his son a great inheritance in faith and finances. It was their responsibility to steward the gifts and see them increase, not decrease and decline. If God did not want sons to inherit the father's ministry, he would not be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, 
they had to redig the wells of Abraham, their father. Sons can inherit ministries, but they cannot inherit the anointing. They must get that for themselves from God alone. In business, it is the same. Until the son proves himself, he cannot assume leadership, nor will his leadership be accepted. Third, teach him a trade. In many countries, in many ways, an apprenticeship is still common. In some countries, such as the United States, it is not as common. But the father can teach his son a work ethic, the value of money, and prepare him for life. Fourth, <laughs> here we go, find him a wife. In some countries, arranged marriages are still made. In Abraham's day, they did not marry the, the one they loved, but they did love the one they married. In the United States today, too often we marry the one we love, then we do not love the one we marry. Hmm, I think we talked about this last week in our session. A father may not arrange a marriage, but he can teach his children the sacredness of the marriage covenant and its value in the sight of God and the glory of virginity. Virginity is the one gift God gives a man and a woman that they can give one time to one person in a lifetime. That is why it is so special and sacred. As a single person, God has given you something so special, so meaningful, so precious, so sacred, that he has given you just that one gift to give one time to one person in one lifetime. Being a good father is the noblest calling on earth. Being a stepfather can require more grace and wisdom than being a natural father, because a stepfather must earn the right of authority, whereas a natural father has it birthed into the family. The principle Jesus gave is vital for stepfathers and the children he has gained by marriage. If you are not faithful in that which is another man's, who will give you that which is your own? Luke 16 and 12. In one of our Phoenix events, a man stood up to his feet and said, I could never understand why I was having problems with my two stepchildren that I did not have with my own two. When I heard that, it hit me that I have not been as faithful to my stepchildren as I have to my own, so beginning tomorrow there will be no difference between any children. Every man there stood and cheered. Why is the, why is the man so important? The first five books of the Bible are simply the stories of seven men. God's story is revealed through men. God reveals himself as a father. We can reveal ourselves to those we have birthed, as their father, because the priest in the Old Testament was intercessor between God and man, and the mediator, the one who ministered God's grace to the people in his care, and were called father. So the father in the home acts as priest for the family. That's why no man has the right to talk to his children about God until he has first talked to God about his children. Prophet, priest, king, dad, father. Be a man real man, Christ-like in all you do in and with family. They need it, society needs it, your family needs it, and the kingdom of God needs it. Amen. Okay, chapter 20, final chapter, burn out, don't fade out. God loves you the way you are, but loves you too much to leave you the way you are. People hear what you say, but learn from what you are. What you are is shown by what you do. Actions speak louder than words. The difference between men who fail and those who succeed, more often than not, is their ability to handle pressure. Proverbs says, 
You are a poor specimen if you cannot handle the pressure of adversity. Proverbs 24 and 10. When I wrote the first part of this book, the quickening power of God was on the writing and I felt I could improve on what was written no matter the time in which it was written. I felt I could not improve on what was written no matter the time in which it was written. The anointing abides and around the world men have had their lives changed from reading the truth. In Zimbabwe, at a conference where I was speaking, a God-fearing man challenged me. Reverend Perkins had been a missionary for over 30 years in, in Zambia and was revered and loved. He had been beaten and left for dead by the side of a road, wrapped with barbed wire and left to die. He not only lived, but lived long enough to see those who had mistreated him brought to Christ. That was the justice he desired. My first sight of him was when he was introduced to speak at the conference and walked to the podium, slowly but emphatically. He stood looking at the audience for several minutes. Then he spied me on the front row. What happened then startled all of us and amazed me. Where were you when I needed you? He bellowed at me. I have spent my lifetime ministering to women and children and only now have read your book, Maximize Manhood. If I had spent my life majoring in men, I could have saved my nation. You need to be in the bush where you're needed. My heart pounded, my face flushed, and I shook in my seat from the force of his words. Never had I been addressed like that before, <clears throat> nor have I since. I have never forgotten the sight of him nor the power of his words. Though I never went to the bush, I have never stopped ministering to men nor ceased writing and addressing their needs. Partners of this ministry have gone and have sent truckloads of books. After almost 50 years of ministry and 54 years of marriage, I am still traveling, writing, teaching, and preaching. Living for Christ is the single greatest adventure on earth. There's nothing like it. I was having a bite to eat recently with a friend who looked at me and said, I give you the right to speak into my life. Anything you see that needs to be changed, tell me. Or if I do something, if I'm doing something wrong, let me, please let me know. Some ministers do it without my permission, but I give you the right because I know you tell me the truth. I paused for a long time and then gave him my final answer. Faded glory. He stared at me to understand the meaning of my answer and then inquired, what do you mean? Don't live in faded glory, I said. Nancy was telling me the other day we needed new wallpaper in our kitchen, new paint in the bedroom, and new carpeting in some areas. When we moved in, she had it all remodeled, redone, and it looked beautiful. But now the glory of that day years ago is faded and needs replacement and redoing again. She can't stand to live in faded glory. I don't understand, he said. <clears throat> Nancy and I were talking about the early days of our lives when we were both converted, how we would not miss a church service, prayer meeting, or witnessing on the streets. Now the glory of God filled our hearts and the fire of God burned so brightly on the altar of our heart. Or how the glory of God did. Then, she said again, something we have said over the years, Edwin, I was born in the fire and can't stand to live in the smoke. What has that to do with me, my friend asked. When you started out over 20 years ago, the glory of God filled everything you did. You learned how to work, worship, lead men, witness, teach, sell, 
whatever a man must do, and now you are a success. But you are still doing the same thing the same way. You have added some things, but basically it has grown old through the years. You need to take another look at it all, at it all so you don't live in faded glory. You live a contemporary life of faith, enjoy prosperity, but when people look at what you have, have, they see things worn and old. You believe one thing, but let them look at another and put them in a mental, blind, mental bind. <clears throat> you believe one thing, but you look, but let them look at another and put them in a mental blind, bind. I'm going to get that right eventually, in a mental bind. A marriage can be in the same condition. The man says it is great, and the wife says it is more moribund or boring. Maybe not quite dead, but mediocre at best. Things have become lukewarm over the years, tepid at best, and the glory of the honeymoon has long gone out of it. The wonder, awe, passion, and love has waxed cold or old, and it is not the same. She tries to tell him, but he won't listen until, like God tastes toward lukewarmness, it is spewed out of the mouth. Or it can happen in a business where sameness was an aim and purpose when it first began, but it is now the reason for boredom, self-half-heartedness, and mediocrity. You push hard to increase the business, but can't get beyond, uh, and but can't get beyond you level of maintenance into fresh creativity. I was ministering for a pastor in Chicago when the Holy Spirit took over in one of those electric God moments while I was speaking. Looking at his congregation, I told them some of them were finding fault with the pastor, complaining about not having access to him, unable to have the same relationship they enjoyed years ago. The problem is that they had grown to new levels and that he had grown to new levels and they never did. They complained about faded glory when they are the ones that refused to pay the price to grow like he did. That's faded glory. It's the same in America. It was started in the glory of a thirst, a desire, a passion to have and live in religious freedom and escape the evil punishment of loving God's printed page. The glory of the nation's founding is recorded over and over again, and there are those in the country who have become, have been welcomed with open arms. Come enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Only brought, they brought their own gods with them and refused to acknowledge the God of all grace and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the price for us to have not only freedom from the bondage of sin and Satan, but of authorities who rejected him. As a result, the glory of America is fading. Indifference to the history that gave us such glory, anguish over the command to have no other gods before him, hatred toward those who adhere to the principles and convictions in God's words, are but some of the symptoms of faded glory in this great God-given land. Rather than the flag being the emblem of the blood stains of those who died for it, and stars representing its magnificent structure, being something worthy of awe and even rapture as it waves grand and high, it is met with a yawn, nonchalance, and those who hate it have the legal rights to burn it. Men resting on the old faded glory, Marriage partners that begin with glory, blessing, wonder, and gratitude now accept divorce as casual as going to the theater. Patriotism lost to a whole new generation that never had to pay a price for the country they live in. 
churches and parishioners who began in the glory of God now live in the afterglow of what once was, talking about the past as if it were the present, talking about what was but now isn't. Faded glory. Believers who gave offerings sacrificially and as generously as they gave themselves to God now resenting the blessings of giving, cynically charging the ministry with self-serving purposes, not realizing their refusal to give is because they have lost the vision of the lost. As we left the restaurant, he said he would never forget those words. I hope you will neither. Will not either. In the Old Testament, after Solomon prayed, the glory of God filled the temple. Time went by, and the temple was still there, but the gold was gone, and brass had been put in its place. A sign of faded glory. What was, but now isn't. Peter wanted to build three tabernacles and stay in the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Lord said no. His glory could not be put in a box, but in a tabernacle made without hands. Mark 14 and 58. The fleshly nature of man will always want to relax, take it easy, find a resting place, and not be subject to the disciplines of the spirit that hungers and thirsts for God seeks the daily application of Bible study and prayer, and wants to be part of what God is doing on earth in this hour. Nancy said it best, Edwin, let's not just fade away, but let's burn out for Jesus. General MacArthur, after retiring, said, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. That is the way of the flesh, the world, earth, and man, but not God. I want to be fired up for God until I die. Why miss the best part of your life, which is today? Yesterday did not have the good old days. Today is the best day of our lives. God's glory never fades, but people do. His glory is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have been born anew into an inheritance which is beyond the reach of change and decay. It's imperishable, unsullied, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you, First Peter 1 and 4. Enjoy it, because it is going to last for an eternity. And that concludes Maximize Manhood. Words for 40 years ago, now 20 years ago, and now today. Amen. Amen.